I am the Lieutenant, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. Today, I am talking about why a woman bearing the sword is an abomination to the Lord. Despite modern feminist condition sensibilities, which have been carefully trained by modern feminist media icons, the evidence of both nature and scripture is clear that a woman bearing the sword is the sort of thing that the Lord spits out of his mouth. What do I mean by a woman bearing the sword? Well, I'm referring to any kind of social role in which she could be expected to have to engage in combat. This would include military service, law enforcement, but also by extension, civil rulership. Romans 13 speaks of rulers bearing the sword in order to punish evil. So why is this something God hates? As I said, both nature and scripture speak to this. We'll look at the evidence of nature first. We have to be careful with natural theology, since our intuitions are easily affected by cultural or personal factors, but it remains that God expects us to recognize certain facts of creation as obvious. For example, in Romans 1, Paul says that the invisible things of God, since the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity, that those who deny it and do not glorify God, are without excuse. They know God, and yet they do not glorify him as God. This is one facet of the creation which is built into us and which we know innately. Another, he talks about further down, is the way that it is unnatural for men to burn with passion for other men and women for other women. This is contrary to nature. We know this because God has built into us at least two intuitions, which can be straightforwardly applied to mankind itself. The first is that form follows function. I would hope that this is an uncontroversial principle for Christians. I would hope we'd all agree that the design of things reflects God's purpose for them. And so I would hope we'd all agree that men are designed for protecting and providing, while women are designed for nurturing and caring. Not because the Bible explicitly says so, to the best of my knowledge it does not, in as many words, but because God made us to intuit our functions from our forms. The reason the Bible is not explicit on this point is precisely because it assumes we already know it in innately. It isn't terribly difficult to see how this works with regard to men and women's roles. You just have to be willing to notice it. The fact that, generally speaking, God created men with strong muscles and agonistic instincts, while he created women with weaker muscles and conciliatory instincts, is neither an incidental curiosity nor a hurdle for women to overcome in their struggle for equality. The fact that men respond to sudden stress with anger and aggression, while women respond with fear and flight, as demonstrated by numerous studies, is not an odd quirk to be corrected. It is a central reason to believe that men were created for combative roles and women were not. God created Adam to exercise dominion by going out and subduing the world piece by piece. Adam needed a helper not because he required backup in this agonistic task, but because the task itself was pointless if there was no one to then stay in each subdued area to fill it and make it home. There is a reason that men are not generally attracted to forceful, aggressive women, and why women are not attracted to different, delicate men. Despite every effort of feminism, it is very hard to override our created natures, to think that commanding women are capable rather than bossy, or that compliant men are respectful rather than feeble, because we instinctively know that what is virtuous in one sex is gross in the other. A manly woman has not added extra virtues to her femininity, she has destroyed her femininity by becoming butch. An effeminate man has not layered feminine virtues on top of his masculinity, he has defiled it by joining the ranks of the malakoi, as Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 6.9. The second intuition that we can apply to this question is that it is wrong to make a thing serve the opposite of its natural function. This principle flows from the first. 
The Bible takes it for granted in many places, such as in Romans 1, which I just mentioned. Suffice to say that the defining function of a woman is to give life. This is obvious from her design, but compare also Genesis 3.20. Adam names his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Chava in Hebrew is related to the word life. 1 Timothy 2.15 also says that she'll be saved through childbearing. Her special place as homemaker, as shown in Proverbs 31 and 1 Timothy 5.14-15, is a natural extension of this. That is why God cursed Eve's childbearing just as he cursed Adam's defining functions, managing the earth and providing for his family. This being so, women carrying the sword as a matter of general principle inverts their natural function. Even if they did have the disposition and physique for it, their very nature is to create and nurture life, not to threaten and end it. For this reason also, it is a detestable thing for a woman to bear the sword. The second line of evidence against women bearing the sword is the evidence of scripture. Although there are many passages we could examine and synthesize, one in particular is instructive for serving as a clear instance of our general principle. This is Deuteronomy 22.5, which says, A woman shall not wear men's clothing, neither shall a man put on women's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Now, although translations typically say that a woman should not wear a man's clothing, nor a man the clothing of a woman, the vocabulary is actually more specific in the first half of the verse. The second part, speaking of how men are not to wear the garments of women, does indeed use the standard term silmat for clothes and isha for women. But the first part, Speaking of what manly things women are not to wear, does not use silmat, neither is man ish. Rather, the terms keli and geber are used. This lack of symmetry is conspicuous considering the Hebrew tendency to rhyme ideas. What is the difference of terminology intended to convey? Well, let's look at each word in turn. Geber appears only here in Deuteronomy out of the hundreds of times that men are talked about. It derives from the Hebrew gabar, meaning strong or mighty. Uh, this is where the term giborim, mighty ones, comes from. While it can indeed refer just to a man, as Ish does, it carries a specific connotation. As Brown Driver Briggs puts it, quote, man is strong distinguished from women, children, and non-combatants whom he is to defend, end quote. Given its completely unique usage here, we should certainly expect that this specific connotation is intentional. The second word is Kali. The connotation of Geber is confirmed by its coupling with Kali rather than with Silmat, which just means clothes. Kali refers not to clothes, but to articles or equipment. For example, in Isaiah 54, 16, Kali is a general term, whose meaning is typically inferred from the context. So, for instance, in the context of picking fruit, it refers to a basket or a bag, Deuteronomy 23-24, while in the context of embarking to battle, it refers to combat gear, Deuteronomy 141. Coupling Kali with Geber therefore makes Deuteronomy 22-5 much more specific than mere garments. Some translations recognize this. The KJV walks a decent neutral road by saying that which pertaineth unto a man, which at least makes clear that there are specific things a man wears that a woman should not. The ISV renders it similarly, what is appropriate to a man. Other translations like the LAB take a stab with apparel of a man, but this is rather too weak. To translate Kaylee Gebert accurately, we should keep the generic nature of the words intact, but also recognize the contextual clues when selecting the best English rendering. What the passage is saying, in fact, is that it is detestable for women to don the gear of men. What would that refer to contextually? Obviously things like armor, helmets, swords, and bucklers. When women's apparel is rhymed conceptually with men's, the difference in word choice is natural, because men's apparel in a nation about to take the promised land by force included plenty of elements that women 
Romans did not. Older exegetes heed the significance of the vocabulary used, Gill, for example, and rabbinical exegetes as well. Many academic sources also note the lack of parallel vocabulary and speak to its import. For example, warfare, ritual, and symbol in biblical and modern contexts observes, quote, Interpreting Kaili Geber as battle gear rather than man's apparel, NRSV, was proposed by Cyrus H. Gordon, and finds precedent in the Talmud. See B. Grossfeld's translation, A woman should not wear a man's armament. The verse is situated in a chiasm that spans Deuteronomy 19.1 to 22.8, and is a structural counterpart of the warfare laws of 20 verses 1 to 18. Deuteronomy 19.1 to 22.8 applies the prohibition of murder in 5.17 to various life and death situations, including warfare, end quote. Although many less technical commentators, along with translators, gloss over the distinction between Geber and Ish, and between Keli and Silmat, Keli is never used of clothes in the Old Testament, and Geber is unique in Deuteronomy. Words mean things, their connotations mean things, and the choices Moses made about which of them to use mean things. The application for today is surely straightforward. Inasmuch as the same fundamental gear is still used for the same fundamental purposes, it is offensive, detestable, abominable to God that women should aspire to don it. The apparel itself is not what concerns God, rather the transgression of gendered duties. Men are not to behave as women, women are not to behave as men. As the CEV puts it, women must not pretend to be men, and men must not pretend to be women. The Lord your God is disgusted with people who do that. While the popular culture shrieks in outrage at the very notion of a man's job, God is outraged at the very notion of a woman doing a man's job. Women donning fatigues, helmets, sidearms, or riot shields is disgusting to the Lord. In fact, it is often disgusting even to acculturated men when it happens in real life. Because without the gloss of a sexy actress dressed up in clothing designed to augment her attractiveness rather than her combat ability, and whose physical incapability for the task is hidden by stunt work, it's simply ugly. For those who are inured, or want to defy that ugliness reflects anything deeper, or triggered at my mere use of that term, the only plausible option for disagreeing with the Bible on this point looks to be cultural relativism. That was then, and this is now. Roles change depending on society. It's progress, baby. But this obviously begs the question against the principles of natural function that I have already mentioned, while also having no hermeneutical principle to justify it in terms of exegesis. A feminist might be cool with that, but no Bible-believing Christian should be willing to dismiss this instance of gendered duties as culturally conditioned, while simultaneously insisting that other gendered duties in the family and church are not. What is the principle on which we can say that the role of carrying the sword was culturally relative, but the role of ruling a family or assembly was not? It's so obviously ad hoc, especially when we realize that the sword is the key instrument of rulership in the civil domain. Now, I'd like to deal with three objections at this point. The first is from people who say, on the basis of what they call Two Kingdoms theology, but is in fact well out of step with historic reform Two Kingdoms theology, that gender roles simply do not apply to the civil domain. There is much that we could say about this, but for now, let me make just four observations. Firstly, this view fails to deal with natural law arguments like the ones that I've given. Secondly, it's obviously ad hoc, driving a wedge between society and the families comprising it while destroying any underlying principle on which gender roles rest. Thirdly, it's patently unscriptural, since Deuteronomy 22.5 is a civil law that clearly reveals the heart of God, and was given for the benefit of all other nations, as we see in Deuteronomy 4.8. And fourthly, it simply isn't the historic reform position, which is universally opposed to women in rulership. The second objection is that my exegesis is simply too much of a stretch. I hang more weight on the phrase Kaili Geber than it can actually hold. It does not mean armament, and nowhere does the passage talk about gender roles. It is simply about what to wear. This is the literal meaning. And by going further, I am twisting the scriptures. Contrary to those with tin ears and ham fists, such a literalist hermeneutic is not one which clings faithfully to the words of scripture, because it is not one which reflects any normal use of language. 
Unless you think the Bible was written according to rules of rhetoric that are completely alien to how human beings communicate, the literal hermeneutic is nothing but scubalon. Every single sentence I have said thus far, with perhaps one exception, illustrates this point. A reading of Deuteronomy 22.5 that denies the underlying principle of gender roles as the basis that it only mentions clothes comes straight off the fundamentalist lathe. Instead of taking the text seriously as human discourse, it trivializes it, treating it as something like a math equation, where each word has no more significance than that which it strictly denotes and the overall meaning is constructed as a stepwise output of the sum of the parts. Not only is this completely different to how even the most ardently wooden fundamentalist actually uses language himself, but it reduces the text in this case to absurdity. Rather than trying to synthesize the concepts in view and find the principles behind them, it demands a piecemeal, arbitrary application that cannot stand up to rigorous and obvious counterexamples. Firstly, it proves too much by still precluding women from combat and law enforcement. Even if Kaylee Gaber refers to clothing alone and excludes all accessories, it remains that military and police uniforms are undeniably men's clothes. Thus, women ought not to wear them. And if you think that these uniforms have become unisex, just run the argument retroactively. Pick a date when they weren't, and you will see that it was wrong then to ever normalize them as unisex by allowing women to don them in the first place. So either women should be going into combat or walking the beat in feminine civvies, or they shouldn't be going into combat and walking the beat. Secondly, it proves too little, because if Kayla Gebert doesn't include accessories of any kind, then a man can be a transvestite as long as he sticks to wearing his normal clothes. Contrary to the fundamentalist's ad hoc principle that the passage is forbidding cross-dressing, his own interpretation insists that fake breasts, makeup, jewellery, and a clutch purse are all well outside the gamut of Deuteronomy 22.5, just as swords and bucklers are. I mean, Hebrew didn't even have a word for stick-on eyelashes. Thirdly, for those fundamentalists who agree that Kaylee Gebert includes accessories, the problem is even worse, because they all, to a man, want women to be able to carry sidearms to defend themselves. But it is absolutely without question that a sidearm in ancient Near Eastern times was a man's accessory, just as a buckler and armor were. So if the prohibition is simply taken at face value and isn't reflecting a deeper principle of gender duties, then women can't carry firearms for self-defense. Indeed, the literalist approach reflects the hermeneutic strategy of the Pharisees. By refusing to look for principles and instead adhering woodenly to the words, certain things become like talismans. Mere contact magically contaminates you. In this case, a woman could, I suppose, touch or move a gun, but the second she slings it over her shoulder, she's violating Deuteronomy 22.5. Since these seem like bitter pills to swallow, perhaps it would be better to give up the notion that cross-dressing is the fundamental principle behind the command here. Or, a better way to put this, let's give up pretending that women bearing the sword aren't cross-dressing, and let's simultaneously acknowledge that the principle behind God's hatred of cross-dressing is that it is contrary to the respective functions he created men and women to serve. The third objection can be summed up in a simple question. But what about Deborah? In one sense, this is a classic example of going straight to the edge to avoid the center. When people hate something God loves, they cast around for extraordinary cases to make it look bad. For example, we know a person secretly hates children when their response to criminalizing abortion is, but what about victims of rape or incest? But in another sense, this is a fair question because although Deborah is the only case of a woman ruling among God's people that feminists can use, uh, you don't want to look at 2 Kings chapter 11, it only takes one case to disprove the universal negative that women should not rule. So having noted that she is an extraordinary case, what should we make of her? Well, close attention to the text reveals that her rulership was a shame to Israel rather than a glory. The first thing that we want to note is that exceptional cases in the Bible are not generally normative, quite the opposite. Isaiah walking around naked for three years doesn't undermine the scriptural injunctions against nakedness, but actually reinforces them. 
It does this by calling attention to something feminists don't well understand, which is shame. Isaiah was enacting a graphic living parable of Israel's humiliation. In the same way, Hosea marrying a prostitute doesn't undermine the injunctions of Proverbs against marrying harlots, but rather trades on their truth to explicitly enact Israel's dishonoring of God. Thus, when we find an exception in scripture to male rulership, we should ask whether it draws attention in some way to a principle of order by intentionally violating it to provoke shame. In other words, there are two ways to read God's raising up of Deborah, two competing hermeneutics. The first is to see it as a commendation of women rulers. The second is to see it as an indictment of them. Feminists tend to assume that because Deborah sets a good example, the first hermeneutic must be true. But Deborah being a good ruler fits just as well with the second hermeneutic if we set it in the context of patriarchy as the proper order. The reason for this is that, like Isaiah's nakedness, Deborah's rule would emphasize the very thing God would be drawing attention to in the first place, the shame of Israel. In this case, Israel's men have abjectly failed to represent God's father rule into the world, dishonoring themselves and their king. Every boy reading Judges 4, 8-9 instinctively knows that Barak is being shamed. Here is what it says. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. She said, Surely I will go with you. However, there will be no glory for you, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Every boy reading Isaiah 3.12 instinctively knows that Israel is being shamed. It says, My people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Every boy is keenly acquainted with the primal shame of being made subject to women, even if it is conditioned out of him as misogyny by the time he is able to exegete scripture for himself. Now, on this interpretation, the shame of Deborah's leadership would not be primarily because women shouldn't lead, but because men should. Thus, the good example she sets wouldn't contradict what we read about women not ruling elsewhere in scripture. It would rather draw attention to it more acutely by increasing the contrast between the moral state of the men who should have been ruling Israel and the woman who was. Israel is faring poorly throughout Judges, but here in chapters 4 to 5, there is a particularly low point in that they are so badly off, they had a woman as a judge. And she did a good job. The creation order is completely inverted. Israel is thrown upside down. In other words, since the Bible often shows us God turning things upside down to make a point, it is at least plausible that God raised up Deborah to be Israel's shame rather than its glory. This principle is important to establish before reading the text itself, because if we are already presupposing a Deborah as glory interpretation, where she is a model for rulership, we are likely to miss some important cues. Reading Judges 4-5 to closely, it turns out that there is a fair amount of theological signaling, irony, and dark humor going on to clue us in that the Deborah as shame interpretation is indeed correct, and the Deborah as glory view is unsustainable. Judges 4-1-3 establishes that Israel is in ruins at the time she comes to power, and as the story unfolds, the way it presents her in relation to Barak draws special emphasis to the shame model. Finally, Deborah herself, by her own testimony, does not see her position as akin to, nor a substitute for, a male ruler. So let's look at the introduction of Deborah. The very beginning of the story introduces her as both a prophetess and a wife. By doing so, it implicitly places her under the dual authority of God and Lapidote, her husband. Her judging is introduced in this context. The prophecy angle is then further emphasized by the mention of the palm tree under which she judges. Trees are commonly associated with divine encounters in the Pentateuch. And so the intimation here is that her judging is by prophecy rather than by normal human wisdom. Indeed, where we see Deborah judging or leading, the text presents it as something done not in her own power, as with the patriarch, but in the power of God. 
She is God's mouthpiece, and at no point in the story does she lead from her own authority as a normal ruler would. Rather, she always speaks on behalf of Yahweh, and this puts quite a damper on using her as a general model for female rulership. Secondly, there's the command to Barak, that Deborah is not standing in as a normal ruler, is further reinforced in Judges 4, 6-7. Here, she enjoins Barak to lead Israel into battle to defeat their enemies. Firstly, notice that she does not order him on her own authority, but seems to speak directly from God, knowing his mind. Secondly, notice what might easily be elided in our day. This is an implicit command to take up rulership of Israel. To lead a nation into battle is something that a nation's ruler would do. Consider the contrast between Barak and David, and David and Saul in 1 Samuel 17. Although Deborah is acting in the place of a judge by merit of her prophetic office, it seems she is seeking to restore the patriarchy on behalf of God. Again, a little awkward for a feminist role model. When Barak refuses to take up this mantle unless she accompanies him, her remark at this point is again telling against a female reinterpretation of her role, saying that he will not get the glory because God will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. As I've noted, this is a shame for Barak. Because he is cowardly and hiding behind a woman, his glory in battle will be sold to a woman. The dark humor of this reversal only makes sense if Judges is presupposing what Isaiah also presupposes about the seemliness of women being over men. Finally, Deborah's own testimony speaks against the feminist reinterpretation. During Deborah and Barak's triumphal song, she herself denies that her place is one of rulership. In Judges 5-7, she describes her role as that of a mother in Israel. Now, a mother had a great deal of influence in the household, and would have been delegated responsibility and authority over that house on behalf of the father. Compare Numbers 36 and Proverbs 31. But she was not the ruler of the house. Compare Numbers 30. And Deborah plainly does not see herself in the position of the patriarch. She sees Barak in that position, reluctant as he is, and desires for herself a feminine role in keeping with her sex. There's also the question of how other scriptures demand that we read the text. Bill Mauser, who wrote the excellent book, The Story of Sex in Scripture, was kind enough to post a comment filling in some intertextual evidence that I had omitted when he read what became this podcast. Since I cannot improve on his remarks, I will simply quote them here. Quote, there are two further witnesses that Deborah was never considered one of the judges. The first one is the prophet Samuel. In 1 Samuel 12, Samuel is recounting some of the recent history of the nation to the people who are about to receive Saul as their first king. When Samuel comes to the period of the book of the judges in which Deborah lived and served, this is what he said in 1 Samuel 12 verses 9 to 11. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Yabin, king of Hazor. And they cried to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Yerubabal and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies, on every side, and you dwelt in safety. Samuel therefore mentions four judges, including himself and Barak, but he does not mention Deborah. A similar thing occurs in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. In the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, at verse 32, we read this. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, and so on. In that verse, the author of Hebrews mentions four judges in a row, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. One of these judges is functioning at the very time Deborah is alive, and he is mentioned as the judge, not Deborah, just as Samuel had done many hundreds of years earlier. End quote. Finally, Father Mauser rounds out this evidence with a comparison to Yael, or Jael. 
Quote, it is fascinating, again, to read in Judges about Yael, the woman in Judges 4 who actually dispatched Sisera to his just reward. The encampment where Yael had her tent was in Sisera's path of retreat after Barak had defeated Sisera's armies. When Sisera reached Yael's tent, he was exhausted, so she invited him into her tent and offered him feminine hospitality, a place to rest and something soothing and relaxing to drink. She lulled Sisera into a sense of security, and he fell asleep, thinking she would hide him if Barak showed up. Instead, Yael waited until he was snoring, and then she picked up a tent peg and a mallet and drove a stake through Sisera's temple. Yael didn't wield the weapons of war. It was the ordinary tools used by the womenfolk that she picked up and used to kill Yabin's general. For all that, men remain the ones who by design and God's intent are the saviors in a society. Deborah was not one of them, any more than Yael was, end quote. So Deuteronomy 22.5 is a useful case that proves the broad principles of men and women's roles and duties. There are created distinctions between us. We are meant for different things exemplified in different virtues. Masculine virtues are exemplified in things like being alert and courageous to engage in conflict and exercise strength against opposition. For example, 1 Corinthians 16.3 and 1 Samuel 4.9. Feminine virtues are exemplified in deference, gentleness, and quietness. For example, 1 Peter 3, 3-4. And as Peter immediately goes on to illustrate in that passage, men and women are therefore subject to different vices, also men to being overbearing and contemptuous, verse 7, women to being vain and fearful, verse 3 and 6. Elsewhere, other tendencies are also addressed. For instance, men must resist being angry and contentious, 1 Timothy 2.8, and being too hard on their children, Ephesians 6.4 and Colossians 3.21. Women are prone to deception, 1 Timothy 2.14, 2 Timothy 3.6 and to idle socialization as gossips and busybodies, 1 Timothy 5.13, and compare that to the old wives' tales of 1 Timothy 4.7. The virtues and vices that we are inclined to are different because they reflect the functions we are made to, which are different. By way of closing, let me give you one final thought. If a man's function is directed toward protecting women and exercising authority, then a woman carrying the sword is not merely detestable because she is violating her intended purpose. It is detestable because it cannot happen except by a man first violating his intended purpose. To carry the sword is by nature to put oneself in harm's way. Therefore, it is not just women who sin when they do this. By rebelling against their created design, it is men also, by failing to prevent women from putting themselves into the kind of danger that men were designed for. Western culture is thus subject to double condemnation. How shall we escape it? Well, the evangelical way of preaching the gospel has not succeeded here. Indeed, it has adopted feminism enthusiastically. To restore God's design for the sexes in the world, we must first restore God's design for preaching his gospel as a message of the triumph of his chosen king over the world. We must start treating the Great Commission as a directive to conquer. We'll have more to say on this in forthcoming podcasts. But until then, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love.